The Politocrat is brought to you by the great people at Anchor. Anchor is such a great place to go if you want to get started in podcasting. And it's easy and it's free. Anchor, marvelous stuff, marvelous. And I'm so grateful to the folks at Anchor for getting me going with The Politocrat. If you want to get going and be heard on Apple, on Spotify and everywhere podcasts can be, Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Friday. March the 27th, 2020. And the weekend is just about upon us. It really is, isn't it? The start of the weekend. And I guess you can party in your house. I mean, that's, that's what I plan to do. I mean, where else would you party in these times? I don't know if you can find any Glimmers of hope, but all I wanted to say before I get started is to be sure to take good care. Be sure to reach out to loved ones and be sure to be good to yourself and others and get a little bit of fresh air, but away from others, physically speaking. Well, now that it is Friday, I think the question I have for you on this day is, do you challenge the candidate that you support in any political arena? Have you ever challenged them? And I don't mean go up to them and challenge them to a duel. (laughs) I don't mean anything like that. I mean, do you challenge them in terms of the positions that they stand for, the platform that they stand on? Have you ever raised questions of them, tweeting them and and, and asking them about things in a critical, but in a critical, you know, in, in a way that you're raising critical questions about them? Because I do think that that's important. And I don't know that many people do raise questions of the candidate that they support here in the United States or anywhere, but certainly here in the United States. I just get this feeling, and somebody perhaps can correct me if I am way off base, but I just get this feeling that people are very tribal about their candidate. And... I just get this feeling that people are willing to overlook, completely willing to overlook the not-so-good things about them. That is my impression. Now, of course, I could be very wrong, but I think that that is exactly what many Americans, many people in America do, is that it's their candidate 
And yes, that person that they support may have some bad qualities, but that's our person. That's our candidate. That's my guy. You know, that kind of attitude. You know, it's like what Donald Rumsfeld once said. Saddam is a bastard, but he's Arab bastard. And I look, look, I mean, there's a... That is very, very true. There's a very... Uh, there's a there's a lot of credence to the idea that people are very very attached to the people that they support and are willing to overlook anything that they do negatively. I mean, if you want a real example of that, a re- I mean a real time example of that is obviously Donald Trump and his supporters, who I call a cult, because they are. And they are not only willing to overlook things that he does, they completely defend what he does. I mean, I remember back in 2017, it used to be, well, yeah, there's some things about him that I don't like, but he's changing things. He's, he's really good. You know, he's changing things. He's not changing anything, by the way, because he's still giving, you know, the billionaires are still making out like bandits. But that's my thing. You'll get that from some supporters. Many of them. Well, he's doing a great job. What's he doing a great job at? Fucking up the country? Because, yeah, he's doing a great job at that, if that's what you're talking about. If that's what you mean by a great job. I mean, that's exactly what he's doing. And he is doing a great job at destroying the country and allowing the... Failure of himself to even activate the Defense Production Act. He's allowing that to, that failure is going to cost many lives in this country. Already is. Already is. So that's one clear-cut example. And then you've got people who support Trump who don't even know why they do. Oh, I don't know. Uh, There was a video going around about that a, a few months ago. Oh, I don't know. This guy is probably about 19 years old. And that was his whole thing is, I don't know. Why do you support him? I don't know. I just support him. Name three things. The question was, I think, something like, name three things or name a reason why you, what, what has he done? What kind of job has he done? What good job has he done? What's the examples? You know, why do you support him? I don't know. It's just unbelievable. That is exactly how this guy was. That's how he sounded. And these folks are brain dead. They're not even thinking. They're not even thinking. And when you can eliminate thought from somebody, that's really powerful. That's very dangerous too. And so I think that that's something that's really a pretty darn serious thing in this country. Where there's this obeisance to their leader or their figure, their support, their candidate. And people, I think, are willing to overlook the flaws, the faults, the issues, the problems of their candidate and continue to support them. Now, I know, of course, that we are human beings and I know that politicians are too and I know that politicians are not 
the barometer for measuring anything of of greatness because of course every single politician in his or her or their life has told a lie every one of them and, and that's well accepted by most people by the overwhelming majority of the voting public that a politician will lie but what is not acceptable is a politician lying over 17,000 times Donald Trump what is not acceptable is that people are actually getting used to it now. And, of course, that's happening at these campaign rallies that he does every day. And I don't know if the networks covered them or not because I didn't watch. I've stopped watching those because it's just a bunch of propaganda, a, a bunch of confusion and lies. And why would you be watching that? It seems like people are watching a train wreck now rather than a briefing. It is not a briefing of any consequence. You have to listen to your state and local officials. I mean, that's that's where the briefings are. Not from this guy. But I want to come back to this whole issue of this kind of fervent loyalty to a candidate. I've already outlined, as an example, Donald Trump and his supporters and how his supporters are so wedded to him. It's like a Jim Jones cult. It really is. I said this back in 2016 and 17. This is a cult. And it doesn't matter what this guy does. They will just go with him. And that is something that is authoritarian and authoritarianist at its very height. Authoritarianism. I mean, it clearly is. These are authoritarian followers who will... Follow anything that this guy does. If he tells them to jump off a cliff, if he tells them to jump off the Grand Canyon, there will be a percentage of those people who will actually do it. I am convinced of that. I mean, you've had David Koresh. Remember when he burned himself and all his followers up in the in Waco? As the government were also closing in on him and probably... F- doing some of that themselves. And then that group in San Diego that did the same, that kind of ended their own, that ended their own lives in a mass life-ending cult frenzy. And of course, Jonestown, over 900 people drinking arsenic. I mean, men, women, and children. This guy told them to do it and they all did it, including Jones himself. It was just, I mean, and this is what's happening in America, it seems. This kind of cult-like, it's very dangerous, cult-like frenzy. But it's one thing to be part of a cult like these Trump supporters are, or what they're called Cult 45 members. But I think it's a, another thing when you support a candidate and you just don't challenge them. Just under ordinary contexts. I'm not even talking about a Trump context. I'm talking about just ordinary context. But you don't even challenge them. You, you know they've done bad things. You know they've been, or been accused of doing bad things. But you just write it off. I mean, look, 
I did an edition of The Politocrat on Thursday when I devoted the episode to Joe Biden and the very problematic nature of of Joe Biden. And I'm not going to go repeat what I said in that podcast, but I made it very, very clear that there is a lot going on with Joe Biden that I think should give people pause. And that includes, of course, um, Tara Reid's account of what happened to her. I mean, I mean, this was rape, as I said yesterday. And I believe Tara Reid. But this edition of The Politocrat today is about the people who support a Joe Biden or a Bernie Sanders or whomever, name the candidate, Elizabeth Warren, I mean, Kamala Harris. It's about the people behind the candidate. Because I think the people, the candidates rather, are supposed to represent the people and they are supposed to be an extension of the people. And if the candidate is somebody who is accused of rape or any other kind of sexual assault or accused of, you know, because these are all violent acts. So if a candidate is accused of of violence against a woman and he or she, but in this case he, is running for president and the people who support him, some of whom fervently believe in getting justice for women who have been wronged in any kind of violent way by men in the workplace or anywhere else. And all of a sudden, those individuals who believe in gaining justice for women in those situations are horribly silent when say, a candidate that they like or may appreciate is accused of doing some of the very things they stand against, then that certainly throws and brings into question their own level of credibility, doesn't it? Because I think it does. I think surely it brings a level of credibility that would be severely decimated their credibility would be absolutely shot to heaven or shot to hell in this case. Why be silent about one candidate and not about another? Why be silent about Joe Biden and not be silent about Donald Trump? Why be silent about name the celebrity but not be silent about Harvey Weinstein? And so that's the kind of thing I, I wonder, is it, does it really hinge upon which alleged rapist you like and which alleged rapist you don't like? 
Is that the test for you? Because if that is the test for you, then may I suggest that something is certainly wrong with your test. Welcome back to The Politocrat. I am Omar Moore, and this question really gets me, and I don't know if it's because we just believe that when we support a candidate or a football team or a hockey team or a, you name it, you name it, that the, the tribalism drives us and then we kind of shut off our receptors to wrongdoing. I mean, when we watch sports, for example, assuming that you're sports fans listening to this, and maybe you're not, but let's say I'm watching, and, and of course there's no sport right now for obvious reasons, but let's say you're watching Premier League football in England, you know, English Premier League. Premier League football, which I love, absolutely adore, um, Premier League football. I mean, I'm from England, but I just love watching Premier League football. And I have a football team that I support who's in the Premier League and all of that. But just imagine you're watching a match between two teams, one of which you support, you're a big fan of, and the other one you don't support. You obviously don't support. You don't like them, actually. And your player makes an egregious tackle uh, at the ankles of another player and the player who's down is writhing around he looks like he's in pain would you say that your player tackled him hard and should be warranted a red card and be sent off or would you say that your player who tackled him shouldn't be sent off and in fact probably shouldn't be given a yellow card I mean how would you do that? I mean, of course, there's no visual example here. But I am trying really to measure how tribalism works in people who support political candidates for office. That's what I'm really trying to get out here today, is to explore that question. And maybe I should throw out a poll on Twitter as well, with the question of, are you somebody who challenges, or, or variation of this question, but one question might be, are you someone who challenges the candidate that you support? If you met the candidate that you are a fan of, would you challenge that person in person? Or would you be only too happy to get a selfie with them and pose with them for the camera? I can tell you that on a few occasions, I have not challenged, and I like to think that I do, and I have in the past, not just on social media, but on the last few occasions, I have not. When, when I have met politicians and prominent ones, powerful ones, I have not challenged them specifically. 
I have only been too happy to get that selfie. Kamala Harris, for example, who is the senator, one of the two senators here in California, was here in San Francisco, actually, a few months ago when she was still running for president. And I went up to her, selfie. And that was that. Never asked her about her days as a San Francisco district attorney, even though I'd known about her record being dubious at best, even though I'd known about some of the stuff she did as the attorney general of this state when she refused to prosecute the foreclosure king of California. Yep, you know who I'm talking about, Steve Mnuchin, who is now the treasury secretary in Trump's administration. She had a chance to prosecute him and she declined to do so. And now look what the world has wrought, what he has wrought now on this country, Steve Mnuchin. But I didn't. I was all too happy to just get a selfie. You know, Marianne Williamson, who ran for president last year as well, and she dropped out early this year, suspended her campaign. Same kind of thing, although... It's not that she is really a politician before. She, you know, she's someone who's been on the scene for a number of years and I think is very sharp, very, very intelligent, very resolute and powerful speaker, actually. I found her to be very compelling. I find her to be a very compelling speaker, more so than Kamala Harris. But I didn't challenge her on some of the things that she said in the past. And it's not challenging people for challenging sake. I'm not talking about that. What I am talking about is keeping the candidate that you support honest, keeping the politician that you support honest. And I think what is also motivating this, and I've tweeted about this <laughs> on Twitter, um, certainly on Thursday I did, um, this, this complete turning your back on when your guy does something bad or when your you know, candidate, when the woman that you're supporting has done something bad, but the other person didn't, and you completely ignore what your person, what the woman you're supporting did, and then try to even make up something about what the opponent did, is that we can't see past our own noses. And I think that the reason, quite frankly, why it is... Um, that I'm bringing all this up, aside from the situation that I'm really ticked off at with some people who have completely forgotten that uh, violence against women um, does not just stop at the door of the other candidate. You know, it doesn't stop it. It doesn't stop there. It, rain, it, it includes when your candidate either does it or is accused of doing it. And then some real hard questions must be asked of that candidate that you're supporting. First of all, are the allegations true? Second of all, if they are, well, what say you? And by the way, Joe Biden's campaign has not responded to any press questions. Crystal Ball interviewed Tara Reid, by the way, on Thursday and said in the broadcast for TheHill.TV that she has not heard back from Biden by all his campaign staff. Nobody said anything. But the thing that's motivating this too is the whole idea of accountability, the whole idea of what we as people who vote do. And I guess what I'm really trying to shape up here is this. If you 
have a candidate that you support for office who's running in the election. And you don't question that candidate that you're supporting when he or she or they are campaigning during the campaign season. When you vote for them and let's say they win and they're voted in. Are you more likely to challenge them when they're in office or less? And I think it's not so much a trick question than a rhetorical one. Because I think that if you don't challenge your own candidate now, when he or she or they are running in the campaign season, if they were to get into office once you voted them in, what makes you or anyone else think that you're going to challenge them once they're in office? And quite frankly, I dare say that one of the reasons that Obama did not do much of, and now look, he was obstructed up the wazoo for eight years by Mitch McConnell and co. But I think one of the reasons why Obama could have reaped bigger benefits and dividends than he actually did, besides the obstruction, is that people, not enough people who voted for him, not enough of the people who voted for him pushed him to do more, with some exceptions. But there wasn't this constant demand on Obama while he was in office to do the right things. I mean, there were some people pushing him. I'm not pretending that there weren't activists or there weren't people who had interests who weren't pushing him because there were. But what I am essentially positing here is that people did not push Obama hard enough once he became president. In some ways, it was as if he had an eight-year honeymoon from some of his supporters, from many of his supporters, and quite frankly, from a good part of the press corps as well. I mean, there were some that criticized him. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that didn't happen, because it did. And the Republicans did it all the time. Fox News did it all the time. Trump did it all the time from the sidelines, from the peanut gallery. But as people like Tom Hartman, who's a progressive, have said, and I agree with them, once Obama got in, we celebrated that. We celebrated that history. And then Obama just basically turned around and said, hey, I'll take it from here. And he did take it from there. And what ended up happening is while there were some very important strides, some great strides, there was a lot of unfinished business at the end of his eight years. And I'm, again, I'm not factoring out the obstruction by the GOP. I'm not factoring out Mitch McConnell violating his own constitutional duty to have a hearing for Merrick Garland. But my, my thing is, why didn't Obama pick a black woman for the Supreme Court? And I don't think there was much of a demand from a lot of his voters to make that happen. In fact, he was listening more to Orrin Hatch and some of those other Republicans in the Senate at the time than he was to you or me. And I think that that is a product of us not sustaining pressure on him to do the right thing, to hold him accountable. And I think that's my whole premise. And so we got Merrick Garland and Merrick Garland didn't even get a hearing. 
But that's my whole premise of this episode is just this evaluation of why we're so tribal. Just this, just to explore why are we so tribal? I mean, it's hardwired into us to be on one side or another, this team or that team. It's kind of a survival mode thing. And we will go to any length to defend not just the behavior, perhaps, of a candidate, however objectionable, well, to a degree, but also to defend that behavior in ourselves. Is that what it's about? I kind of get the idea it might be. And if it is, then that perhaps yields and renders some uncomfortable truths about ourselves. And I think that it is worth giving that some thought. I think it is worth giving that a lot of thought. And I guess my point is, if we are supporting somebody, no matter who it is, we should be raising questions about them. We should be raising questions about them the way we'd be raising questions about the opposition candidate or candidates. And we should be able to get out of that tunnel vision and that tribalism and independently think and raise critical questions about all the candidates. I mean, you don't go to a grocery store and just pick up some fruit or some food without examining it, do you? You don't go into a grocery store and fail to look at what you're buying. You don't just grab it, do you, and just walk out and walk away rather to the checkout. Well, at Amazon, I'm sure you can do that. But I mean, you know what I'm saying. You, you, can, you don't go into a supermarket and just pick something off a shelf and not scrutinize it, not look at it, not read it, not examine it. And I'm saying that you shouldn't be doing that with candidates in politics either. I mean, this person is the person that certainly none of these people is perfect. None of us are. But all I am suggesting and saying is that you have to hold them accountable. Whether your person gets in or whether the opposition person gets in. And I am I, saying that you don't, if you vote someone in and they get in, you don't just turn around and say, oh, my job's done here. You keep pushing them to deliver on some of the promises or many or all of the promises they have made during the campaign. And I think the problem is we are educated in America to believe that voting is the end all, not the beginning. And voting is not the be-all and end-all. It is just the start of what we have to do to, I think, push the candidate that is in office and push that person to implement our agenda and do so with constant, constant alacrity. That's what participation in a so-called democracy is all about. That's what activation is all about. That's what activism is all about. That is what it's about. You don't just vote and then turn around and go home. 
and sit down for four years. You've got to get active. Now, look, I recognize that not everyone can do that all the time. But I'm just laying out a framework so that we dip ourselves into the water, dip our toes in, so that we do begin to get used to the idea of holding any candidate that wins an office accountable on some level, whether it's attending town halls, whether it's petitioning, whether it is tweeting, whether it is going to a rally, whether it, whatever it might be, trying to get in contact with a campaign or a staffer or whatever, calling up the White House, calling up Congress, whatever it is, you have to do that. Because if you don't make your voice heard, no one's going to do anything for you. They are not going to pay you any attention. And of course, I've laid out this example before about Hank Paulson in 2008, then Bush's Treasury Secretary, going up to Capitol Hill, begging for a bailout with his hands out, a three-page letter. He's begging Congress for a bailout. And the American public said, hell no. And they, they slammed the congressional switchboards. And that led to Congress voting down this bailout package. And then, as I said in the previous politocrat, the American public went to sleep or got distracted. And then two weeks later, hey presto, when America wasn't looking, Hank Paulson comes up there again and Congress votes yes. And they get this bailout. So my whole point is we must hold politicians accountable, no matter who, especially in this election season. We've got to start holding them accountable. And also, I just don't believe that we should just blindly support a candidate without requiring anything from him or her or them. I think that's very unwise. And I think that's what cultism is. That's what fanaticism is. But that's also what laziness is. I think you should vet candidates. I think you should vet people that you're supporting. You should vet them. And they should be obliged to have that happen if they care. And Joe Biden has been the least vetted candidate. And I've said that before. But my whole point is that we should not just turn around and say goodbye, see you in four years. I think we can do a whole lot better than that here in the United States, especially now, more than ever before. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Omar Moore. I can be found on Twitter at the popcorn R-E-E-L. You've been listening to the Friday edition of The Politocrat. <laughs>